Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is episode 128. This is part two of our Boston seminar question and answer session from uh, fall 2020. If you haven't checked out part one yet, well, you can just go back one episode or you can click on the link in the description below, whichever you prefer. Uh, a few announcements. First, if you didn't listen to the first part, then you didn't hear this disclaimer. Hey, look, Austin's audio is not the greatest. What happened to Tom, unfortunately, was unavailable to help uh, do some AV stuff for us uh, during the seminar. So uh, it was just me. And for whatever reason, one of my connectors to get the lavalier mic into the camera to get the audio from the lavalier mic was not working. I don't know. It's I replaced it. It's all working now. But we used an AirPod for Austin's audio, which, you know, the audio is intelligible. You can hear it and it's loud enough where you don't have to keep messing with your volume, but uh, it's not up to snuff for our quality. So if you're wondering why it sounds like Austin's talking through an AirPod, well, he, he actually is. So shout out to Apple for uh, the AirPods because that works just fine. Um, another few announcements. We have new articles on the website on the effect of exercise on blood pressure. Um, also how to incorporate the Olympic lifts into your training if that's something you're interested in. And also a case for training calves. Yes, we finally have gone down the rabbit hole of calf training. Um, so check those out over on the website. Uh, again, there's a link in the description below. Uh, we also have new YouTube videos up on uh, how to assess self-efficacy and what that means. And also how to explain pain to others. So if you're into the multimedia kind of stuff, check out our YouTube channel. Uh, once again, there's a link in the description below. And then finally, uh, about two weeks from today, so end of this month, we're doing an online pain and rehab seminar. Now I say we, it's not me, but rather Dr. Michael Ray and Dr. Derek Miles. They're holding their pain and rehab seminar online. Um, it's two days. Uh, usually goes from 8 a.m. to about 4.45 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, there's about four to five lectures per day on stuff like evidence-based practice, pain education, hip pain, shoulder pain, low back pain, youth resistance training, and ACL rehab. And then there's a Q&A following each day's work. So if you are a healthcare professional interested in managing these issues, you see these issues and you're looking for uh, some additional education, this is for you. If you're a strength conditioning coach and uh, you want some more knowledge on this stuff, this is for you. Or if you are a strength enthusiast and this stuff tickles your brain bone, well, check it out. Uh, so yeah, signups for that will run uh, about another week. I know it's filling up. We've got a few spots left, so check that out. Again, there's a link in the description below. And yeah, I think I've done enough talking. Let's hop into this week's podcast. Uh, any advice? for how to avoid certain recurring acute injuries. For me, hamstring tweaks. To be clear, not asking about treating slash dealing with the pain or aftermath, but how to experience fewer of them. Yeah, this is a great question. Uh, so the way I think about like recurrent injuries is like you basically get more and more sensitive, more and more uh, likely to have these recurrent injuries over and over again, the more that you have them. And a lot of this has to do with training risks, so elements of your program that probably haven't changed and maybe need to. So what is your average training intensity? What sort of tools are you using to mitigate training load? Are you using something subjective like RPE? Uh, are you using uh, something like a velocity tracker to tell you if the bar speed's slowing down or are you just adding weight in discrete intervals? 
I would make a case for auto-regulation, certainly in this point, whether you're using a subjective marker of auto-regulation like RPE or reps in reserve or an objective one like bar velocity, I think that would be pretty useful. And I would be very conservative initially. The idea is like, I want to build you back up so where you get closer to your original sort of uh, level and, uh, and, and versus just getting you, you know, back to where you can tolerate things again, because I think you're still likely more sensitive to, or more, or you have a higher risk of redeveloping the same injury. So from a training side, I'd focus mostly on load management, which I think auto-regulation should be a big point of that. If you're already doing something like that and you're like, yeah, but I'm still getting injured. And I'm like, I think the dose of training is likely too high for what you can currently tolerate. How do I know that? Cause you keep getting injured. This assumes that the injury is happening during training too, right? Like if you're not getting injured during training, but you race motorcycles and you're getting injured racing motorcycles, I think these are unrelated, right? So I'm not sure how to manage training, right? Uh, the motorcycle thing would be the case. But if it's happening during training, then I'd be looking at your uh, load management. Uh, other things I'd be looking at, any like spikes in environmental stress that are recurrent and that either precede these things or time up well with them. So for example, if you were a student and these injuries always occurred around finals week, for example, that would coincide well with a rapid increase in environmental stress that needs to be addressed with your training um, and efforts spent there. Uh, if it has something to do with, wor with work, you know, it's tax season and your tax person, for example, or uh, I don't know, car salesperson, it's the end of the month. I don't know if that actually is a thing. I mean, I'm not in the car industry, but whatever. Anytime where acute stress routinely spikes, you would theoretically want to uh, dial back training and use some method to do that. So in any case, I would just, I would likely be more conservative with how I reintroduce training with somebody who had a recurrent injury that was the same thing over and over again. And after I bought some work capacity there, I'd then be more aggressive at going after that thing. Not only as like a, uh, you know, from a mechanical standpoint, like, yeah, let's build this bad boy up the hamstrings in this case, but also to prove to the person like, no, you aren't fragile, right? You are resilient. We, you, you can thrive through this thing. So um, person with a recurrent hamstring injury, uh, I think if you're not doing Nordic hamstring curls, those aren't part of your program, that should be in there. I would probably also make a case for unilateral hamstring work because if it's, it's, you're likely only injuring one hamstring at a time, we do have some evidence for increased injury risk with, if there's a unilateral strength discrepancy of the hamstrings, though that is related only to team sports, I think that it's reasonable to include unilateral work. Um, and then I would make sure that your programming is relying on some sort of auto-regulation and probably make that a little more conservative initially to get back into the gym. I would agree with most of that. I think the only caveat I would add is, you know, it's reasonable to want to find something to reduce your risk of developing, uh, you know, pain or an injury. Uh, it's reasonable to look for things that can uh, lead you to experience fewer of these tweaks. But to be clear that pain is part of life and it, you are likely to experience pain in some capacity at some point in time and knowing how to manage it is, is wise. So it sounds like you already know how to manage it. Uh, but I think this goal is very reasonable as far as wanting to reduce your risk. I would agree with load management. I would agree with some targeted uh, uh, training to the area, again, within your tolerance, things like Nordics and, and, and other uh, kind of uh, hamstring-specific uh, movements to build up the uh, capacity for loading so you can tolerate more loading, so you can tolerate more training. Um, and that's probably about all I would be able to do. Do you think that you have to be in pain to be injured? Can we not? Okay. <laughs> 
uh, let's see, given what we have learned about red meat and butter, oh, the saturated fatty acids for red meat and butter, and their potential impact on cardiovascular disease risk, is there any reason a client shouldn't remove red meat from their diet entirely if they are also supplementing with creatine monohydrate, besides the fact that it's delicious? Can I just say, I love when people ask us red meat and saturated fatty acid questions because the comment sections are lit. <laughs> okay, first, is there any reason a person should eat red meat or meat at all? If they want, if they want to, otherwise, no. If you're a vegetarian or a vegan, that's a perfectly reasonable way to eat. On average, vegans consume about 600 calories less per day than non-vegans and vegetarians, like 400 kilocalories less. And so if that's the way that you're adherent to an otherwise health-promoting diet, that's fine. Do you have to eat meat to be healthy? No. Can you eat meat and be healthy? Yes. Does it have to be red meat? No. <laughs> Um, the interesting thing about this question is with respect to creatine monohydrate, in order to get the ergogenic dose of creatine from red meat, we're talking kilos of meat, red meat intake per day. Because per a lot, yeah, per day. Per day. Because a lot of the creatine that's within the red meat, when you cook it, it cyclizes to creatinine, which is not useful for you. That's not, it's not like it gets in the body and goes, yes, I'm in the body. Now I get to become creatine monohydrate and make gains. No just filtered by your kidney, ends up in your urine, okay? So, and we're, again, kilos of red meat per day, every day, just to get some creatine monohydrate. That's one, not cost-effective, because creatine monohydrate is super cheap, red meat is not that cheap, uh, and then also just not the move. Right. Can you imagine eating two kilos of red meat per day? No. Just to get your creatine? No. Because I would ask you at some point, like, what are you doing? And you're like, I got to get my creatine in. And I'm like, they make it. There's a scooper. <laughs> yeah, I'm objectively, objectively bad enough at eating as it is. Sure. Putting kilos of meat in front of me is not going to happen. Well, how do you lift so much weight then? I just train a lot. No, but you have to eat meat. <laughs> right. I heard on the internet. So the, the only caveats I would add for this, because you guys already heard a lot of this, but again, for, for more of the, the YouTube audience, as far as red meat and butter intake, I don't think you have to eliminate it completely from your diet. It's perfectly reasonable to include some of that. What we were talking about more was the kind of the dosage. As we talked about with exercise, as we talked about with everything, the dosage uh, matters quite a bit more. And so if, as we said, once you start creeping over 15, 18, definitely over 20% of your calories coming from saturated fatty acids from these sources, we can make a pretty good case that reducing that level of intake down from well over 18, 20% down to 10% or so or, or below um, that you stand to uh, uh, gain some cardiovascular benefits from that. Now, again, this does not mean that when you consume higher amounts, you're guaranteed to have a heart attack, and when you consume less, you're guaranteed not. This is on a population level. When we get a whole population moving from higher levels of average intake down to lower levels of average intake, we see very clear uh, benefits on that, on that front. So that's kind of where that recommendation uh, comes from. If you enjoy consuming red meat, as I think both of us do from time to time, that's totally fine. If you enjoy consuming some amount of butter in your diet from time to time, I think that's totally fine. The dosage is what we're talking about here. Um, so we're definitely not uh, espousing a raw vegan diet for all, all the time kind of recommendation here. No. There's room for this, uh, but the dosage is kind of what we're talking about. And that's what we can make a case for based on the current evidence. See, we were gonna be fine before you went into the saturated fat thing. It was only gonna be the people who were really hardcore anti-vegan. That yeah. those are gonna be the only people in the comments. Now, now it's all coming. Now we're gonna get the lipid heart hypothesis denier, and thank you. 
You don't even read the comments. This is correct. <laughs> is there a way to train the grind phase for a given movement, such as the deadlift, to mitigate acute muscle failure? Is there a prescription, reps plus sets, RPE or other, that can help, or is it just a matter of time and experience? Uh, okay, hold on. So the reason why you fail a deadlift isn't because the muscles failed. They were just unable to produce enough force, right, for the given leverage that they were currently at. It's not like the muscles failed because they stopped producing force. It just wasn't enough. Um, so that being said, in order to get better at lifting heavy weights, you're going to have to lift heavy weights. Uh, heavy, though, is a, is a broader range of intensities than most people think. Most people think when I say that, they're like, oh, so you mean just close to 1RM all the time. And as you guys know from the programming lecture, I think if you're a competitive power lifter or barbell sport athlete, yes, substantial amount of your work is going to have to be heavy. 90 to 100%, you're going to have to do singles there or, you know, occasionally heavy doubles or something like that. Yes, that's going to be some work that you do when getting ready for a competition or otherwise trying to train your ability to lift heavy weights very specifically. But to improve strength um, from a more developmental uh, from a more deve developmental standpoint, I'm talking about training in that 70 to 80% intensity range with error bars on either side, probably larger on the lower side than we would otherwise expect. You know, it wouldn't surprise me if that recommendation or that range that I just kind of quoted uh, moved down to 60%. And so the, the idea is that uh, you're gonna do the majority of your training there because it's making up the most volume that you're doing. Uh, that's gonna be the, the majority of your training with, again, regular exposure to singles. That's how you're going to get stronger. Uh, and again, you guys just heard this, but to reiterate, training heavier isn't necessarily better if it costs you more fatigue and prevents you from doing more volume. You could get a similar effect from training a little bit lighter with less fatigue and therefore do more volume, which increases the signal to, to drive more fitness adaptations. And that's the idea. You want to drive the most amount of fitness adaptations, not necessarily get the most fitness adaptation from a single set, even if that set costs you everything with respect to fatigue. So that's the idea. That's basically a programming lecture in a 30 second nugget. Yeah. yeah. Uh, is there a prescription that can help? Uh, you just got it. And is it just a matter of time and experience? Also, yes. This is gonna take place over time. So somebody asked me on our Facebook group, they were like, what's a good beginner powerlifting program? And I'm like, I don't think a good beginner powerlifter program exists because there are no beginner powerlifters. There are people who are new to powerlifting, right? They've never done it before. But the way I view this is that if somebody came in and said, I wanna be a powerlifter, I'm like, great, how long have you been training? And they say, I haven't. I'm like, cool. So in my mind, their first meet, while that may be relatively soon, it doesn't matter their first year or multiple years of training are going to be about building this sort of base of physical adaptations. You need to make them an athlete before they become a powerlifter. Yeah, because otherwise then you're just a powerlifter. Yeah. Remember, no one cares. Well, because if we're, if we're trying to build it like long-term development, there are other things that need to be in place. Yeah. And uh, again, I don't want to hyper-specialize early on because I think that sets them up for failure. Not only they, they do worse with respect to learning the movements, they do worse with respect to building lean body mass, they do worse with respect to injury risk, they do worse with respect to having the tolerance and work capacity to train enough to actually realize their you know, full potential. So I wouldn't wanna 
shortchange them just so they could go to the meet and steal some shitty state record that no one cares about. It doesn't mean that state records aren't cool, but I want it to matter. I want it to last for 20 years, right? That's the idea. Set, you know, make, do something that matters rather than just pick the, you know, uh, there was no one at it who had a, a, a lift and that's how we got the state, state record. It's like, all right, I don't know if that matters. The only thing I would add to this is when you're talking about the quote grind phase of a lift, sometimes you'll hear people talk about sticking points and a lot of these have to do with the, the point in a given movement when your kind of leverages, mechanical advantages are at, actually at their worst. And uh, I think there are some misconceptions around this, specifically having to do with the idea that you can train and like make them go away. I think for most people, these quote unquote sticking points never really go away. You just get stronger. Um, and so for set, like I have a few uh, uh, lifters who have particularly notable sticking points like they have done lifts where they almost came to a complete stop in a given part of the movement and had to grind as hard as they could to get through it. Um, and then over time, they have exhibited market improvements, not because it went away, but because whereas maybe before it happened at 330, now it happens at 400. Uh, they just got stronger and their threshold for where that quote unquote sticking point kind of became apparent just went up. So when I get questions about this a lot, I just say, yeah, the solution is just to get stronger. And, and you know, there's some intentional amount of snark there. But at the same time, it's kind of the reality that the sticking points don't typically go away. You just have to get stronger and raise that threshold kind of over time. Yeah. I mean, it's just there are modifiable sticking points and non-modifiable ones. Yeah. And sometimes it do be like that. Yeah. Other times, if it's like technique related or certain postures that you feel like you can train out of somebody, yeah. then, yeah, you can address those directly. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't. Yep. Almost done. As a coach... What would be an effective way of combating imposter syndrome or the general feeling of being wrong? You, you, you probably are wrong, <laughs> is the thing. And that, but the, the, the thing isn't like, how do you deal with it? It's, you just accept it. Well, once you accept that you're probably wrong about most like things that you feel and believe or whatever, life becomes so much better. Right. You'll still have these core beliefs that'll and you'll see something that disagrees with that and just irks you and you want to argue. But then you have to realize, no, you're probably wrong, at least on some level. Easier said than done, uh, for sure. So I, th I mean, you know, barbell medicine is now eight years old. Uh, well, almost going on nine, close to nine now. Um, and earlier on, I did not have any of this like imposter syndrome thing. I thought this was the greatest thing and somebody should have done it earlier, but I'm glad they didn't. And then somewhere in the first like, you know, three or four years, I started feeling like I'm, 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 I'm phony. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking about. Like as much as I, I think that I should, right? I, I don't know enough. Uh, uh, how, how do I fix this? Right. And so like, I mean, I was already in medical school at the time. I was still coaching people full time. I was like, all right, I'm trying. I got to read as much as possible, know as much as possible. And, and then, and only then will I, I won't feel this way. But, but the reality is you got to become comfortable with not knowing the answer. That's fine. You can't be an expert in everything. You won't know everything. And the things that you do know, if given enough time, are going to be shown to be wrong anyway. So the, the important thing is to realize that you shouldn't prioritize like your knowledge, things that you consider to be like, you know, truths that are going to be forever, but rather being adaptable because you're going to learn new things that change the way you think about everything. And being able to incorporate that into your beliefs, that's the important thing. So now, the general sense of nihilism. Welcome. Yeah, it's like, 
caring, caring a little less. And then also just being okay with being wrong and updating my priors. I'm not, again, it's way easier said than done. And I definitely have been there, particularly as, as a coach, but, but I think full accepting like that you're not, you're gonna be wrong often. Um, and it's less important about being right, but knowing where to find the right answers and how to like update uh, your information. That's probably the better, the better move there. Yeah, I think there's an implication in the question when it's talked about combating imposter syndrome or the general feeling of being wrong. I, I don't think you want to combat the feeling of being wrong. Okay. It needs to be something you're okay with. And so I think a good book that everybody ought to read is just called Being Wrong. It's oh, by Schultz. Yes. Um, worth, worth the read to dig into this topic quite a bit further. It's normal. It's okay. Um, and yeah, I agree with kind of emotionally detaching from probably more things than people should emotionally detach from, but that's just me. Uh, particularly uh, certain beliefs that aren't really worth getting your identity and pride and stuff tied up, tied up in. Um, I think one of the more influential kind of concepts that um, hit me the first time I heard it, particularly in the course of medical training, was this idea that, yeah, 40 or 50 years from now, people are going to look back and think that we're idiots. And I go to work every day and I'm practicing medicine in the hospital. I'm treating patients knowing that I'm giving them medicines and doing things and justifying what I'm doing based on what I've been taught, what I've trained, the literature that I've read. And I recognize that, yeah, probably 50 years from now, people are going to look back and be like, can you believe those, you know, primitive apes <laughs> <laughs> used this medicine to treat this condition? Complete morons or something like that. And you're a gomer and you're like, it's all we had. <laughs> yeah, right. That's, that's, that's how it was back in, you know, the, the 2000s. So, yeah, read that book and, and uh, you know, be okay with it. What are they going to think about the year 2020? It's gonna, That's be, gonna be very. It's gonna be lit. Yeah. All right. Cool. Uh, should we move on from asking specific adjectives such as dull, burning, aching, or can these descriptions uh, still be useful in specific scenarios? I think when it comes to pain. Yeah. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> just in general. Yeah. Just. A, yeah. Oh. Um, I think if it's gonna change how you manage something, very useful. But in most cases, it's probably not. Yeah. I, I I think asking more open-ended questions. So in general, how does this feel? And then if you need clarification because you didn't understand, you just ask, can you tell me more? Again, more open-ended stuff. And then to the degree you need to specify like exactly what the sensation is because it's going to change what you do, do that. But if it's not, you don't need to go further down that rabbit hole. That's my take on it. Yeah. Yeah, we get taught in medical training to ask very specifically about kind of what these things feel like. And then we're taught to associate these descriptors with certain diagnoses. And uh, in retrospect, I feel like that's not that useful. There are very few situations in which, say, somebody comes into the ER and I'm seeing them with chest pain. And because they told me that their chest pain was crushing versus their chest pain was burning, I'm not going to manage that situation differently because they're having chest pain. <laughs> and I have a certain level of concern about that. And I will evaluate it according to other factors, not just their description. Um, so we're taught these things. I think they have far less value than we're taught. Um, and so I agree there is a lot of value in just asking, eliciting a person's experience so that you can hear their story and learn what they're experiencing so that you can kind of relate to them a little bit better. So if a person volunteers these adjectives to me, they tell me it feels like this and they want to go into great detail, that's fine. I'm happy to listen to that uh, in particular because I think there's more benefit, both objective benefit um, uh, uh, in terms of relating to the person, of uh, listening to their story. I may be augmenting the placebo effect of that interaction by uh, caring about what they're saying. Um, but uh, as far as diagnostic utility of these things, I don't think they're particularly useful from a diagnostic standpoint. Um, 
in any in any real significant way most of the time. So um, I don't think we need to say, would you say that your pain feels this, 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 this? Because, again, that's not helpful. Rather, if you say, tell me what it feels like, and they tell you it feels like that, fine. Yeah. Last question. Do your patients and colleagues know about barbell medicine and the work you do outside of medicine? Uh, you want to start? Because, you know. Yeah, sure. Uh, so s my patients that I see in the hospital generally have no clue who I am, what I do, uh, um, in the hospital even. They just know that I'm a doctor who walked in. Or outside of medicine, they don't know anything about barbell medicine. They don't know anything about, most of them don't know anything about exercise. Um, so there's a lot of room for that kind of discussion when I work with those folks. I do some telemedicine work, and those patients more often do know who I am, what I do. Um, the more amusing and interesting thing is uh, when my medical students and interns and residents, uh, maybe they happen to Google me or something like that. Or I've had some interns find the memes of my deadlift case. And so I'm, <laughs> I show up to work and we start rounds in the hospital and we're seeing our patients. And then one of my fresh interns or medical students says, <laughs> I saw you on the internet or I saw you on YouTube. And I'm like, here we go. And it happens literally every month because I don't volunteer this stuff to them. I don't say, hey, here's why I'm a big deal or something like that. I just show up and do my job at the hospital. But pretty much every month at some point, a week or two in, one of the students or the interns ends up finding me and they end up uh, you know, making a fairly big deal about it, and it uh, gets a few laughs, I suppose. <laughs> so, do they are they finding they're finding the memes now more? Yes, the memes are being found very frequently. Uh, yep, yep, yep. I think the whole residency knows uh, at this point, right? Pluses and minuses. <laughs> um, so, I do barbell medicine for full time. I don't see patients anymore. So, my colleagues work at barbell medicine. So, yes, they do know what I do at barbell medicine. Uh, people outside of barbell medicine also know what I do for barbell medicine, if they know me, because I'm, I'm Jordan Barbell Medicine. <laughs> the most interesting interaction that I've had like in recent times, there's this uh, person at the gym that I train at was like, I was wearing a barbell medicine shirt because you know I'm gonna promote my own brand, right? Also, I have way too many barbell medicine shirts, so really it'd be silly to wear anything else. And this guy was like, you know Alan Thrall? And I was like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he's a good, he's a good guy. He's like, yeah, he works for Barbell Medicine. I was like, you know. It's... Anyway, yeah, so that was funny. So you're, you're more famous than I am, Alan. Very cool. All right, thank you guys so much for coming out. Really appreciate it. Uh, again, if you didn't answer, ask, uh, if you didn't answer your question, check us on the forum, Facebook, or Leah's DMs. So thanks, guys. Cool. That's a wrap on episode 128. Again, that's part two from our Boston seminar question and answer session from fall 2020. Uh, part one, if you uh, listen to these out of order, well, check out the link in the description below or just go back one episode. You can do that. Uh, on next week's podcast, we're going to be either talking about the uh, progressive overload concept and how we think about that here at Barbell Medicine, so some programming info, or it's going to be on vitamin D. I haven't figured out which episode I want to upload yet, so uh, dealer's choice. But either way, check us out next Monday and every Monday here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Uh, also, wherever you're getting this from, uh, wherever you get your podcasts, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast, and we really appreciate it. And hey, we'll see you guys next week. Have a good one.